Well, if you haven't noticed it, um, the the intro is the same every week as we go through this overview of Romans. Um, And my prayer is that by the time we're done, the intro will be the gospel sermon that tracks from Romans from one end to the other. So this morning, uh, continuing as briefly as we can, in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, for your sake, none can separate. Paul writes to the church at Rome and says that he is not ashamed, but instead that he is eagerly obliged to the gospel. A gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, the wrath of God revealed against men, the righteousness of God revealed in making propitiation for you and for me, ransoming back his own people, purchasing our lives with the lifeblood of Christ. This is the gospel. That the one who has been eternally just may also legitimately be the justifier. So that it can be said of Abraham that he believed God and something as pitiful as his belief was counted to him as something so much more than it was that it was reckoned to him as righteousness, the very power of God on display. Faith that is not powerful in and of itself but is powerful because of the one in whom we have faith. And having been justified through the gift of faith given to us, and friends, it is a gift. That is the only way you will get it, is if he gives it to you. We boast. We boast in the hope that is God. We were dead. Born in the image of Adam, from dust we came and to dust we will go. And yet in Christ we live, because in Christ we died. We know who we are. If you're a Christian, if you are a saint today, you know what you are. Paul says very clearly that we are those that by the baptism of the Spirit are those who have died with Christ, have been buried with Christ, And who are therefore risen with Christ by the glory of the Father that we may walk in the newness of life. Slaves to righteousness. An enslavement that is not a burden. But is the very definition of the joy of love. Because God has stuff that's not like our stuff. It's not like our stuff. There is an enslavement to righteousness that is unlike anything else. It's a profound identity. It is life from death, calling that which does not exist into existence, buried with him in death, that we may be raised with him in life. Men are enslaved to their own being. In Romans chapter 8, verse 8, Paul writes, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But the reality is, is if you belong to Him, you are not in the flesh. 
He continues in the very next breath and says, You, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. You have been adopted, set as a child. We're going to look a little bit later today and be reminded once again that this holy God of which Alvin was speaking just a minute ago is altogether nothing like us. He's nothing like us. He is the creator. We are the creation. And yet he has seen fit to set us as his children. Sons and daughters of the Most High. This only occurs through adoption. There is no other way that it can possibly happen. For you were not his, but he made you his. It is the very testimony of redemption. You have been given an inheritance. The Spirit himself, nothing less, the Spirit of Christ himself being the deposit, guaranteeing what is to come to you that is placed in you upon your regeneration. God will not forfeit on what he has already paid. He will not forfeit on the life of his son. I'll never forget what, um, what Brother Adams told me on the day that I surrendered to preach. Everybody knew Brother Adams, and if you didn't know him, Damon did, and he was a dried-up little old raisin of a man, okay, who had been old since, like, the Constitution, right? <laughs> And he always had peppermints in his pocket. Rocky knew him. He always had peppermints in his pocket, right? I surrendered to preach, and he comes down front. Everybody's shaking your hand, telling you how great it is, right? Nobody wants to tell you how hard it's going to be. They tell you how great it is. And so here he comes, and he's, you know, he's got peppermints in his pocket. And he reaches out to shake my hand, all knurled knuckles and all, and grabs me with a death grip and pulls me right in and said, Son... If the Lord pulls on your chain, don't dig in your heels. He will break your ankles. <laughs> and then went right back to being the smiling old guy with the peppermints in his pocket. The value, the value of what God expended upon the cross in order to guarantee the deposit on your salvation is of such great height that he will not forfeit upon it. He will have his glory. And if you're called according to his name, he will have you. He will. And because that is true, we can stand on the most ridiculous promise in all of Scripture that for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, all things work for good. And he has, it's not that he will, 
He has staked the life of his son on it. And so once again this morning in Romans chapter 8, in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, if you love God, it is because you are called by God. And if you love God and are called by God, you have never one time in your life had a bad day. You've had some hard ones. Oh man, hard ones. Paul knew all about the hard ones. He just didn't know anything about the bad ones. He continues in verse 31 and says, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The depth. The depth of what Paul says. I've looked back over the last couple of months as we're doing this kind of overview and recap, and, and I've looked, and, and I've mentioned it before, I'll mention it again, it's not a pity party, I just want you to know that there is a real struggle to figure out how to take what's in Romans and to cook it down. <laughs> we spent three months in four verses in chapter 8. And there is so much stuff that is there. It is hard to grasp the fullness of the glory. It's like what Alvin was saying just a few minutes ago. If, if anyone saw you in the fullness of your glory, there is no way that they could deny you. There's so much that's there. As a matter of fact, concerning that very topic, Matthew Henry said on this particular section of Scripture that Paul speaks as one amazed, swallowed up 
with the contemplation and admiration of it all, wondering at the height and depth, the length and the breadth, the love of Christ which passes knowledge. The more we know of other things, the less we tend to wonder in them. But the further we are led into the acquaintance with gospel ministries, the more we are affected with the admiration of them. If Paul was at a loss what to say to these things, it's no marble if we be. What does he say? Why, if ever Paul rode in a triumphant chariot on this this side of heaven, here it was with such a holy height and bravery of spirit, with such a fluency and copiousness of expression, does he here comfort himself and all the people of God upon the consideration of these privileges? Jim, I wish I could write like that. What an incredible statement. To understand the gravity of the truth at hand, we must understand who this God is and what he has done that qualifies him as being for us. When by all estimation, he should be against us. All estimation. But he's not. He's not against us. He's for us. Which is the most glorious thing and the best news that I can ever proclaim to you. He is the God that is. In Exodus chapter 3, in verse 13 through 15, Moses said to God, oh, and, and just by the way, just for your information, like like there are uh, there, there's no like gee whiz tricky revelation in this sermon this morning. <laughs> Everything's classics. Moses said to God, "If I come to the people of Israel and say to them." The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is your name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In the Hebrew, it's Echiah, Eser Echiah. It translates equally as I am who I am or I will what I will. I am that I am. I will what I will. You know, we look at that and we go, well, you know, that could mean anything. Or it could mean infinite things. But the Lord shows himself to be who he is. The I am and the I will is being declared to us through his word. In the book of Ezekiel in chapter 1, we see the prophet, for lack of a better description, literally assaulted. (laughs) Literally assaulted with the presence of a holy God himself. And he sees who the I am is. He experiences what the I will 
wills. And it says in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 1, In the thirteenth year of the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, I was among the exiles by the Chebar Canal, and the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. And on the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chibar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. And as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud and brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. The narrative continues, but for brevity's sake this morning we'll pick up back in verse 26. It says that above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness of a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. Downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain so was the appearance of the brilliance all around. Such is the glorious nature of the God who is and who does and who is for us. Man, if that's him, if that's him, and friends, it is, if that's him, then I ask you with Paul, if he is for us, who can be against us? I don't talk about circumstance. Don't talk about happenstance. Don't talk about hard times, grief, trial. I consider these things not to be worthy of comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He is altogether unlike us. In Psalm chapter 50, verse 21, the psalmist says, These things you have done, I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. He is so much more than us. And if you're anything like me, then that should be an incredible comfort to your soul. Because when I look at the realities and the trials that Paul says are not worth considering... When I looked at, at, at the, the travail of the world around us and the tribulation that is yet to come, the realization is 
is no matter how tough I think I may be or how tough you may actually be, we are insufficient for what lays before us. Insufficient. But he is altogether nothing like us. The one who is both just and the justifier. Who would not even withhold the life of his own son. That he may set you in adoption as sons and daughters. That you may have a deposit that is unforfeitable, that guarantees the fullness of your inheritance to come, this very one is for you. He is for you and not against you. That'll make you strong. It'll make you what the world would call crazy. What it will actually do is overcome crazy. The God that is for you is so for you that he has given his son. You were foreknown. We don't have the time to break it down this morning, but this is the context. You were foreknown. He was intimate with you before you existed. Men of Israel, Peter said. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was always his purpose. It was always his purpose. Now, just take a moment, just a moment, to wrap your head around that. Take a moment to consider. We teach our kids. We consider ourselves, we think about the Genesis narrative. We think about the Lord saying, let there be light and let the, the, the waters be separated from the land and let there be expanse between the heavens and, and the earth and, and let the green things sprout forth and let the sea teem with life and, and, and let there be creeping things on the ground and all those things. And then we're going to form Adam out of the dust of the earth. Breathe into him the breath of life. Consider him after he has considered himself. Big point. <laughs> After he has considered himself, let us consider him that he sees that there is no helper suitable for him. And we'll take a rib from him and make him a helpmate. In the image of God, male and female, he created them. And understand that from the very beginning... 
And Scripture tells us, man, the book of Colossians tells us that it was by the physical hands of Christ that these things happened. He was the means by which the creation came forth. The Father spoke it, but it was his hands that put it together. And understand that even as he was forming Adam's fingers, he knew exactly what it would cost. Creation was cheap. Oh man, this goes to the heart of who God is. And this is omnipotence. Speak a universe into existence, not have one drop less of power, not have one drop less of currency than I had before the moment I spoke it. I can speak a billion of them. Redemption. That's a deal. Even as he was putting him together, before he was putting him together, he was foreknown. He was predestined. He would be called in order that the Christ may be the firstborn among many brothers. He would be justified out of that call. It's effectual. He will not lose what he has paid for. He would be glorified. In Genesis chapter 22, I'm almost done. We'll go play in the snow. In Genesis chapter 22, we see displayed to men the testimony of God's side of the gospel. We always preach man's side. And we should. We should. But we always preach man's side. This is what God is offering you. This is what he did for you. Amen. Man, his glory is in that from front to back. Amen. Let's preach it every single time we open the book. We would do well, though, to consider his side of the gospel. He showed it to Abraham. This is the one that Jesus said... Your father Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He saw it. And here's the way that the Lord showed it to him. And friends, let me tell you something. It was brutal, okay? It was brutal. And I don't say that because I want to be a tough guy. What we're talking about in the gospel is life and death. And pulling something from death into life. And doing so by paying for it with the expenditure of the life of your son. So it is brutal. There's no way to get around that. And it is glorious. Man, it is so good. There's a reason they call it gospel. 
It's because it is good news. Your father Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. And this is how God showed it to him. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. This isn't part of the notes. So if this is for you, great. When he calls, the right answer is here I am. That's it. Don't make an excuse. Don't don't try to clean yourself up. The right answer is just here I am. That's it. Don't question him. Don't put him to the test. Just... God tested Abraham. You may not like the concept of that. Let me assure you, the Creator will do with His creature whatever He pleases. It's okay for Him to roll you around. Here's the good news. It's all working together for your good. So get beat up. I got $100. Here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. So, dads, you ought to be kind of settling into the circumstance here okay take your son your only son Isaac whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you Abraham arose early in the morning he saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place to which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to these young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they went both of them together. 
When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. You go, man, what kind of rejoicing is that? I mean, I look, I couldn't drama that up more if I wanted to. He took out the knife to slaughter his son. Scripture tells us that Abraham never had it in his mind that God would relent. That it never crossed his mind. We read it today with a sugar-coated, candified, Western Christianity view of the character of God. A character that we are very uncomfortable all too often with him coming and saying, I'm altogether nothing like you, right? And we read it and we go, well, of course he wouldn't. I mean, look, all things are working together for good. Of course he wouldn't require. Man, he took that knife out to cut that boy's throat. And he never for a moment believed that God would relent. Not because he thought less of God than you or me, but because he thought more of God than you or me. Abraham had a completely different thought in his mind. And it was not that God is too good to require this of me. The thought in Abraham's mind was God is so good that if he asks it of me, then he will raise the boy from the dead. This is the gospel. That's it. That in Christ you will die. And in Christ you will live. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 17 The author of Hebrews makes it clear to us. It is explicit. By faith, Abraham. You want to talk about faith? This is why we talk about the gift of faith, friends, because let me tell you something. The kind of faith that is being spoken of that is associated with regeneration is not a faith that you can conjure up on your own. You can't get there. I would go so far as to say that apart from the gift of faith that comes from God himself, if you could convince yourself that it's okay to slaughter your boy and God will honor that by raising him again from the dead, that what you are is nuts. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac 
and he who'd received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. I'm not going to go into I'm not going to go into the grammar this morning, but that imperfect concept right there means that he was pulling the blade. Like he wasn't just committed to doing it, he was in the act of doing it. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. When God told Abraham, take your son, your only son, in whom all of the promise lies. The promise that the New Testament tells us is the promise of the gospel. It's not just land. It's not just the state of Israel. It's not just this kind of vague idea that in you the whole world will be blessed. But this promise is actually the gospel. And it is being manifest physically because humans are physical beings and you need a physical gospel. It is being manifest physically and it is coming through Isaac and then through Jacob. Yes, even the one who sees us from behind. And here he is, the one in whom all the promise is bound up. And what I want you to do is go cut his throat. And Abraham believed God before Paul ever wrote it. We place Abraham at 2000 BC, give or take. 2000 years before Paul ever wrote it, Abraham already knew the gospel. He knew he had faith that if God was for him, that there was none that could be against him, and all things worked together for his good, even if it meant the death of his son. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. In the gospel of John chapter 8, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. If God was going to sacrifice his son, and he was, he did, Abraham had no reason to believe God would not require Isaac from his hand. Such is the faith that accompanies salvation. Such is the faith that is the testimony of those for whom All things work together for good. If God is for you, who can be against you? Oh man, we are, as Paul said, 
For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Yep. If he's for you, who can be against you? Are you called? You go, well, man, I I don't know. How do you know if you're called or not? All things work together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The matter of the fact is, is that there are none, there are none who love God apart from the call. So what do you do? You examine your heart. You test yourself. You ask yourself, do I love God? Man, if the answer is yes, done deal. What if the answer is no? What if the answer is no? Question that needs to be asked. Question that does not need to be smoothed over. And for those of you that do love God and are having to ask this question of other people who may or may not, friends, don't smooth it over. Don't. What if you don't? How do you love that which you don't love? Supernatural grace. Miracle. That's how you love that which you do not love. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says there is no distinction between the Jew or the Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Examine yourself. Do you love him? If not, call on him. He speaks life from death. He calls into existence that which does not exist. He says, let there be light when there is no sun to cause the light and later makes the sun so there will be a reason for the light. Call on him. He is faithful. He is just. He will answer. He staked his own glory on it. All things work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What shall we say to these things? If he is for us, who can be against us? Friends, let me tell you something. The the way that you get to the point where you have the kind of faith that says, I'll kill the boy, forget about killing the puppy. I'll kill the boy. 
That's never an easy road. That's not an easy road. You get there hard. When you do, know this. Know this. That all who call on the name of the Lord are saved. You don't love him? That's a problem for you. It's not a problem for him. It's not a problem for him. Problem for you. Problem for the preacher who's trying to talk you into loving something that you don't have any ability to love. It's not a problem for him. Just like that. He spoke you into existence. In a moment, he will speak into your heart a love that is so profound that it will give you the kind of faith that says, you know what, if that's what he asked of me, I guess he'll just raise the boy from the dead. Come to Christ. You say, I am Christ. Awesome. Take that and put it before somebody who isn't. Listen, Romans is deep. It's thick. It, it has been a labor for us. It's thick. It's thick for a reason. It's thick because it speaks to the greatest glory that has ever existed. It is simultaneously complex and incredibly simple. All at the same time. And don't sell out one for the other. Don't sell out one for the other. It's both. Man, it's the, it is the diamond. It's just carbon. But it is put together in the most perfect way. All who call in the name of the Lord. All who call. He is faithful to answer. Either call or put it before someone who can. Let's pray.